Well, welcome all you wiretappers. I'm down here in my Gangland Wire studio. And actually, I'm recording this uh, way south of uh, Kansas City because it's colder than heck at back up there. Now, by the time I get this out, it'll probably be uh, warm again. But uh, I'm, I've been working. I was invited to be a, a guest expert for the second time on uh, a podcast called Mafia, which is like it's part of Gimlet, I think. It's, it's one of those big-time podcasts that has hundreds of thousands if not millions of of listeners because they they have this whole network and a lot of money behind them and and they get the word out my word only gets out when you guys tell your friends about it and tell other people about it or maybe get on my gangland wire podcast facebook page and share that with your friends and and try to get people to start mine only grows by word of mouth they they have been able to do advertising and do all kinds of things but anyhow i, I digress you know and, and it's a it's a nice professional uh look at the mafia uh the history of the mafia it's it's not as personalized as mine they do they get some pretty decent guests and they have a a professional announcer or a voice that kind of talks about it but you know that guy didn't he didn't spend 13 years working organized crime either and so anyhow uh i'm not any better or worse than they are they just have more money than i did and started out with a lot more money so that's uh as i often say you know i i don't know i don't want to be too successful i guess at this and i have to keep doing it and i'd like to be like uh like robert de niro and heat you know i, I want to be able to just pick up and move on when i i can at the drop of a dime so Anyhow, I appreciate all your support, and uh, it helps me continue to pay the uh, the out-of-pocket expenses on this and helps me do my movie, which, by the way, I have a new movie coming out. Uh, I mean, I'm just working on I'm getting t- close to post-production, and I have a deal for you guys. If If you would like to be an executive producer on that movie, get that credit at the end of the movie, It's uh, the, the title of it is voter fraud here again or vote fraud here again i can't remember all of a sudden it was a headline in 1946 in kansas city and and it tells a story of of president harry truman who wanted to get rid of a missouri congressman who wasn't going along with some of his programs so harry truman president truman calls and also writes a letter to a man named jim pendergast who was the nephew of tom pendergast who was boss tom I had the uh, political organization all through the 30s and, and up till the war, World War II, and he went to prison, and, and his nephew Jim took it over, and right after the war, Harry Truman's become president, and he gets hold of Jim Pendergast and says, you know, I want this congressman, Roger Slaughter, defeated, and Jim Pendergast then goes to his mob connections, uh, a guy named Charlie Benaggio, and and who gets his other mob guys out, and they help influence the vote, and they make sure that that congressman is defeated in the primary because it was a ran a Democrat against him in the Democratic primary because up to that time only Democrats won in Missouri. And we come to the general election, and the Republicans sweep everything. And even though the uh, the Democratic the president's a Democrat, he wants he do, they do not want to get involved in this investigation because they know it's going to be embarrassing to the president so they stay out but you've got a republican senator a republican congressman and a republican jackson county prosecutor here in kansas city and they go after it and and they're going after it and they're getting ready to indict some mob associates for uh voter fraud 
when one night a safe was blown up in the basement of the Jackson County, Kansas City, Missouri courthouse and all the evidence is stolen. Well, then the FBI jumps into it big time and the U.S. attorney does and they start investigating. But, you know, they can't they can't ever solve anything. And and eventually it just kind of gets you know, blown under the rug. And, and there's so many other big things going on at the time in the country. You know, the war had just been over and, and, uh, uh, the iron, iron curtains dropped and, uh, we're going into the Cold War with Russia and Korea's getting ready to start. And, and, and there's just a lot more going on and that kind of drifts away. But we, a researcher that I've gotten to know has written a book about this called John the Yegg, Y E G G discovered an old FBI document in which they interviewed the guy that blew up the safe, who then later recanted his confession. And and we have several stories that came out of that election and uh, about the mob and their involvement and how they worked. And one mob guy gets convicted uh, in the end, but the feds actually have a grand jury and they convict a few people and they particularly convict a who, who was in a, a guy named uh, Morris Klein, who was kind of the Jewish Mayor Lansky of Kansas City, uh, convict him of uh, voter fraud. And then that leads right into the death of the two Charlies and kind of the end of the, uh, I'd say, early days of organized crime in Kansas City and sets the scene for the ascension of Nick Savella, who would be our boss for all that time, for, you know, up until, what, 19, uh, late 80s, middle to late 80s. But I'm I'm doing this movie about it, and and I'm ready for post production. Like I started to say, and for a thousand bucks, you can be an executive producer. That for two hundred fifty dollars, you can be a producer. For a hundred dollars, be an associate producer. And fifty dollars, at least fifty dollars, donation, you can get a mention. And anything less than that. Uh, I'll just see how many of y'all are, uh, depending on how long I want the credits to run afterwards. If you want to give me smaller amounts of money and and tell, let me know you want to be part of it, more than likely, uh, unless it just runs on too long, I'll make y'all a, a supporter too. So I'll try to I'll get that up on the website with uh, on the show notes with this, and and then just do the donate button. Unless you got Venmo and, and you can want to do that kind of money in, in your Venmo account. Just when you do the Venmo, let me know that that's what it's for. So uh, having said all that, I'm, I'm going to do a story on Raymond L.S. Patriarca Sr. Now, he is one of the most interesting little-known mob guys. He didn't get much pub- He's kind of like Nick Savelli. He never got a lot of press or publicity like they did in New York or Chicago even, but he was a really powerful mob boss. Uh, as usual, uh, his father, Elaterio Patriarca, and, and his wife, the, the mother, immigrated from Sicily in the early 1900s, and they moved to Worcester, Mass., and Raymond was born in the United States. Uh, they moved to Providence, Rhode Island, which is just up the road, just a, a short piece. Uh, that was in 1908. Raymond was three years old. They moved to the Federal Hill section, which you may have heard of that. That's where all the, that was their little Italy, like we have in Kansas City, Columbus Park, or little Italy. Uh, this is where all the newly arrived immer- Italian immigrants were uh, pushing out the Irish at the time. The Irish had been there in the same way in Kansas City. 
they push out the Irish who are already moving into the government jobs and and getting successful businesses going, and they're moving on out farther out of uh, the downtown area. Uh, Raymond's father ran a bar and a liquor store, and that's kind of where young Raymond got his first exposure to organized crime. There would have been a, a black hand family, and there's no doubt about it. I didn't really go that far back into it. Uh, and they would have paid attention to somebody running a bar and a liquor store. Well, when Raymond was 17, his father died, leaving a widow, two daughters, and one other brother. All the patriarchal kids by that point in time were old enough to work, and they all lived in the same house in the Federal Hill, Hill area. Years, years later, Raymond will tell a congressional committee that he uh, drifted a little after his father died. During his middle to late teen years, Raymond Patriarca worked, worked as a bellhop and, and supposedly shined shoes. I kind of doubt that, but maybe he had a shoe shine stand in there. He more likely had some younger kid he made shine shoes and he got a piece of the action. But he would spend a lot more time stealing, hijacking trucks, and running from the police, according to his record of arrest. Like every other rising young criminal during Prohibition, he ended up getting arrested for transporting illegal alcohol. And by the 1930s, he gained a reputation as a professional criminal. He got involved in a plot to free a couple of prison inmates from a Rhode Island state penitentiary, and I don't think he took direct participation in it. I, w I couldn't really find a lot about it. He's got a lot more interesting stuff later in his life that I focused on. But the participants killed a prison guard and a trustee, and he ended up getting a year and a day so they could get him for a felony. Uh, usually when you hear a sentence of a year and a day, that's like, that's a deal, you know, where uh, somebody got a cop to a felony, and they got to give you at least a year and a day in prison. And he was sent to Atlanta in 1931 for transportation of, over a state line for the purposes of prostitution or the Mann Act. Right, I guess that would have been right after he got out of prison for the uh prison guard uh, murder, or well, the, uh, the attempted prison break he was involved with. In 1932, he's charged with committing an armed robbery down in Massachusetts. It was a bank, but the witnesses refused to ID him, which is pretty common in these mafia cases, as you guys know. He was becoming so well known by the middle 30s that Providence police had a list of criminals that they called public enemies, and they could arrest him on site and bring him in for at least a few hours. And they used to do that I, I even up into the 50s and sometime into the probably middle 60s, and they started passing some civil rights legislation. Uh, I, I remember looking up these guys' records, and, and they would say, uh, arrested for suspicious activities, hold for 24 hours. Now, the Providence, Rhode Island Mafia family, there was two families in that area, Boston, which is real close, and Providence. Now, for the Providence family, during the turn of the century, uh, as I said before, many Sicilians immigrated to the Federal Hill area, and they brought the Black Hand Mafia with them. In 1917, a man named Frank Morelli, they called him Butsy. I don't know how he got the nickname of Butsy, but, but Butsy Morelli moved to Providence with his family. He and his brother Joseph formed a robbery gang. Some people claim that these brothers were the real robbers, not Sacco and Vanzetti, who killed a guard and a pay clerk in that famous 1920 Braintree, Massachusetts robbery, where uh, Sacco and Vanzetti were probably improperly charged and convicted and were sent to the electric chair, I believe. 
During those years, most people would consider Frank Morelli to be the face of the Buffy in Providence, Rhode Island. The Boston family, at the same time, there was a Giuseppe Messina and a Joseph Lombardo, who were the kind of the early bosses of what they considered the entire New England area, and they based it out of Boston. During the Castelmarese War in New York, Messina was temporarily appointed as the boss of bosses up in New York, and he moved up there, and this Joseph Lombardo, who had been serving as underboss, was started organizing several Sicilian gangs. He helped to eliminate the very powerful Irish Gustin gang at the time. As these men got older, another man named Filippo Bucola arrived in Boston from Palermo, Sicily. Now, Joe Lombardo will never really become the permanent boss. Uh, he will never really rise higher than the underboss. And Bacola be- will become the boss of Boston. Now, I believe at this time, the Boston family was kind of like the big brother over Providence and the rest of New England, kind of like Chicago is over Kansas City and Milwaukee and, and uh, um, anywhere in, in Illinois and, and even down to Des Moines, Iowa and over to Omaha. Uh, according to a the famous New England mob turncoat, Benny Teresa, Boston's underboss, Joe Lombardo, ordered Butsy Morelli into retirement and promoted Filippo Bucola to become the boss of Boston and Providence in 1947. So these two families merged in 1947. By 1954, Filippo Bucola retired to Sicily. He wasn't really there that long, kind of like during the the war and right after the war. And Raymond Patriarca was a capo under Bucola and, and a well-known successful mobster by that time. He had already organized several small crews under his leadership, and these men were making big jewelry scores and bank robberies, armored car robberies. He, he got into gambling. He was, he'll become the gambling czar. He had opened several gambling establishments in Providence and the surrounding area. He had uh, slot machines and, and vending machines out there, uh, as we'll learn a little more about. He allied himself with a couple of different New York families. He had some business interest with the Colombo family. And during this time, a man named Enrico Henry Tamaleo transferred from the Bonanno family to be Patriarca's underboss. Tamaleo is also known as the referee, by the way. Now, this gave him solid connections back to the five families in New York, which, of course, helps with your power base. Keep them happy, kick them a little money, and and they're going to take care of you. And, and of course, he got involved with Frank Costello because Frank Costello was the man for slot machines at the time, and he was the uh, Luciano acting boss. Lucky Luciano had been deported, and Frank Costello was didn't really want to be the boss, uh, but he became the acting boss with Vito Genovese under him who was constantly trying to want to be the boss. The commission at that point in time agreed that Patriarca would control Boston, Providence, and the majority of New England, except for some little pockets where maybe Genovese's had always moved out into, uh, would be the Costello, the Costello-Luciano family and moved out in and had some little pieces of action going on. But mainly it would be Raymond Patriarca, and he operated out of Providence. Eventually, Patriarca will appoint an underboss based in Boston in the 1960s named Gennaro Angelo. Uh, This guy was an interesting guy. He never really worked his way up as a hitter or a 
street thief, but he was a gambler. Uh, he earned a lot of money. He had a very successful numbers racket in Re Revere, Massachusetts, and which is basically, I think, a suburb of Boston. And Patriarca made Angelo a offer that he couldn't refuse. He, Patriarca brought Angelo into his family as the underboss in exchange for a big piece of Angelo's gambling action. By 1957, the Massachusetts Crime Commission named Patriarca as the most powerful influence in New England gambling, which they alleged at that time was a $2 billion a year business. 1958, he had consolidated all the gambling action. He started the National Cigarette Service Vending Company and operated out of a building that used the name of Coinomatic. This building, this, this building becomes hugely important in any study of the Patriarca crime family found a lot of old FBI reports, and, and they kept talking about a MISUR survey by the FBI in the early 60s. It's M-I-S-U-R. So I checked into that. I'd not really heard it before, but this is an acronym for surveys of a property to gauge whether you could get a hidden microphone installed or not. And if it was for a telephone tap, they called it a TELSER or telephone surveillance. So it's microphone surveillance, MISUR, or TELSER is telephone surveillance you see those terms anywhere. Informants claim at that point in time he had $250,000 invested in a Las Vegas casino with three other mobsters. He had so many points, and I'm pretty sure from my reading it was in the dunes at the time. 1958, the McClellan Committee on Racketeering called Patriarch in. They asked him about using strong-arm tactics to remove rival cigarette vending machines from bars and other locations where cigarette machines would go. They, was, they were a huge moneymaker for mob guys. We had a, a company here in Kansas City. Uh, it was, uh, uh, well, there was BG Amusement, and before that it was Paramount, I believe. And, and they moved around the city, all the bars. When they came in and they wanted to put their cigarette machines and their jukeboxes in, then usually people... You know, they didn't resist. Uh, they pretty much had a lock on it. Now, at that time, they talked, asked him about how he had been so successful, and he claimed that he had a shoebox at home with about eighty to $90,000 in cash left from his mother's savings over her whole life. She had died by now, and which is having that cash hoard, that's a way to to circumvent the IRS. <laughs> I don't know if you can still get away with that or not. I don't know if deals in cash anymore. But uh, uh, Robert Kennedy was doing the questioning, and, and he said, well, he said, if you're so successful uh, and you're so square John now, uh, how come you got involved in burglaries when you were younger? And he said, well, he said, uh, why do a lot of young fellows do a lot of things when they haven't a father? Which goes back to that, uh, he, he went astray a little bit, he told another investigator. Later in 1959, Bobby Kennedy got him in front of the commission again, and Patriarca does not take the fifth like most of those guys did. And, you know, the famous, uh, I'll take the Fifth Amendment. My lawyers asked me to advise me to not answer for re reasons of the Fifth Amendment. Somebody that's been as successful as you can remember how to say I decline to answer well, questions, so don't put that act on. I want to live sure. Yeah. In 1961, Patriarca took out a large advertisement in the Providence Journal Bulletin to complain about their coverage of him. Among other things, he'll state, your newspapers seem to take fiendish delight in their unwarranted and unjustifiable characterizations of me. You infer that I am involved in illegal activities. 
Well, during the late 50s, the very early 60s, the FBI start documenting his day-to-day activities from a hidden microphone they got placed in the coin-o-matic. Now, in 1966, a Providence gambler named Willie Marfeo is murdered for failing to pay tribute from a gambling game he was running. After he was confronted by Patriarcha Consigliere Henry, the referee, Tamaleo, they say that Marfeo cursed and assaulted him. Patriarcha ordered him murdered, and someone caught him in a Federal Hill grocery store inside a telephone booth and shotgunned him. Somebody will kill Marfeo's brother a couple of years later. You know, they say if you set out to kill one brother, you better be ready to kill them all. It's like I pointed out in my movie, uh, Brothers Against Brothers. Because of this hidden microphone, authorities will convict Patriarcha of conspiracy in connection with these murders. Now, I went over a lot of those reports that the FBI had. There's a lot of talk about he had some heart problems back then, and he was staying home a lot, and they, they were doing their miser, and they, they were, they'd see him sitting in this coinomatic office. It's on Atwill Avenue in this very close-knit Federal Hill neighborhood. And they'd see Henry Teleo in there all the time. He had a consigliere named Frankie, Frank the Cheese Man Cucciara. Cucciara. Uh, I'd see him in there a lot. There'd be other people coming and going. It was known by everybody uh, in the game as the office. The agents reported that they did what they called their survey of the property that there was an Italian social club with gambling at all hours of the day and night across the street, which prevents any kind of an easy installation. They don't really ever go into what happened eventually, but by 1964, they've got a microphone installed, and it's rocking and rolling. They established a listening post four or five blocks away at 153 Dean Street. For those of you who might live up there, be driving up into uh, Providence. It's uh, still in Federal Hill. It was the St. Margaret's Home for Working Girls, and it's now the Arbor Hills Assisted Living Building. FBI reports show that that hidden microphone revealed that Patriarcha was truly the godfather of the entire New England area. Agents, monitoring agents, hear Patriarcha talking about sharing bribe money with a former New Hampshire governor at that time, John Note. He wanted to get race dates added to horse race tracks in Rhode Island. He was big into horse racing. There's a lot more talk about the horse racing. Uh, they learn he's forcing recording industry executives to pay him to get airtime on New England radio stations. If you remember the payola scandals back in those days, if you wanted uh, to get your music played, you had to kick some money to these DJs. Well, it looks like he stuck his way, his, himself in the middle of it as a middleman and got the recording industry to pay him. And then he turned around and paid the, paid the DJs. They hear insurance executives coming in and complaining to him about all the auto thefts in the area. All in all, agents will be learning that Raymond Patriarcha is a dominant force in all illicit political and labor union activities in New England. People even bring him, he's like the godfather, like I said. People bring him complaints like someone was disrespected in a restaurant and he agreed he'd make a call to straighten somebody out. A father came to Patriarcha about his son who had gotten murdered, and, and it came out that the son was a dope addict, and, and the father was wondering where the dope came from, like, you know, maybe he wanted to go after whoever was providing the dope to his son. 
and uh, Patriarca said he really didn't have any information on this on the mic. Um, they discussed police officers who were tipping them off about raids and even named a state police officer as a man that was trying to set up and arrest one of their Providence police contacts. Later on, they'll talk about trying to get certain uh, Massachusetts state policemen assigned from one place to the other. On one occasion, a man displayed a p- pistol silencer, judging from the conversation, and said he paid 300 bucks for it, and he was going to get a few more made in case Patriarcha wanted one. Uh, he talked to a guy who had stolen a large quantity of Spidell watch bands. Now, that's old-school Spidell watch bands. Nobody even carries a watch anymore, but uh, there was uh, Spidell watches that had... Uh, you know, really nice watch bands. Patriarca said he wanted about a dozen for himself for Christmas presents. Talked about the use of slugs in his vending machines, and, and they kind of continued on how much did it cost to buy slugs. And, you know, he said he wasn't really getting too many in his vending machines, and then they wondered if they could be used in telephones. They didn't really think they would work in telephones. Uh, they overheard him discussing buying and selling truckloads of TVs, radios, razor blades, and all kinds of other retail items. He helped a guy get a demolition project, and he told him he's going to charge him one buck for each light taken out of the demo project. It must have been, I don't know, uh, it didn't really go into details, but it uh, must have been some kind of removing light fixtures. Somebody comes in and asks him about Joe Bonanno's disappearance, and if you remember, Joe Bonanno had a famous, uh, he, he, like he set himself up to be made look like he was kidnapped because he was in trouble with the mob and the cops and they're wanting to serve papers on him and everything. And Patriarca said, well, he'd find out later. The kid's coming up. Now, they never figured out who the kid was, but later uh, he tells someone that Bonanno was not kidnapped and just disappeared on his own because of all those other trouble. He hears people discuss, as I said before, with about horse racing and uh, jockeys that they give four to five hundred dollars if, quote, they pull the horse real good, unquote. They name a trainer as a, a Spanish guy who they said runs hot horses. Now, I couldn't find anything about that. But I got a feeling by running hot horses, the way it was said, that he must be doping them up. There was an underling of Patriarchas that came to him with a plan that was going to involve some doctors down in New York. Didn't say what the plan was, but one of the doctors was a relative of a New York boss, and the guy complains that they want a piece of the action. Uh, Patriarca advised him, do not go into business with any of these New York families. He said it's kind of interesting. He said, they're nice people, and I will help them occasionally, but not do any business with them. Explained he one time did some business with one of them years before, and then a new boss came in, and he took everything and left Patriarca with nothing. Now, let's talk a little bit about the uh, 1957 meeting in Appalachian. Now, in regards to Patriarca, supposedly, they discussed narcotics, among other things, the problems after Albert Anastasia got killed and Vito Genovese was taken over the uh, Luciano family after he tried to have Frank Costello killed. Patriarca had sent Frank Cucciara, his consigliere, or the cheese man, to represent his family. And they, they say they, the press called him the cheese man because he owned a cheese importing company. Uh, Cucciara had been a close associate of Lucky Luciano and Vito Genovese, and he had been known to finance some narcotics transactions with them. And about two weeks prior to the meeting, the old Providence boss I mentioned before, just before uh, Patriarca, who had retired to Italy, Filippo Bucola, 
had arrived in Boston from Italy. Now, uh, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics had always suspected him of being the man, a central figure in international heroin trafficking, you know, out of the Mideast, uh, through Sicily, maybe the French connection uh, uh, up into uh, uh, France and, and then over to Canada and to the United States. Now, Bacola was not caught at the meeting uh, Cucciara was, but it was suspected that he was there and Cucciara was there to discuss narcotics trafficking and how they should pursue, proceed or should they even continue to be in the heroin business. Now, supposedly, the the commission, uh, the entire organization, said they shouldn't allow narcotics trafficking out of that. But as we all know, the Genovese and the Bonanno families found ways around that, and so did a lot of others, mainly by, like in Kansas City, by somebody who would invest money into a pretty good drug dealer. And uh, it's kind of like making a juice loan to them. You know, they, they loan them, you know, $50,000 to go make a nice score. They get $100,000, whatever, in cash money to go buy a load and, and then pay them, you know, like... 50% on it or something like that, or uh, juice loan rates basically is what they did. Uh, since it's, they're putting money into narcotics traffic, it's going to be a little more than uh, juice loan rates, I would imagine. You know, after that uh, Appalachian meeting, I, they convicted all those guys and gave them a $10,000 fine. Everybody that they caught there, they had a hearing, and, and then the appellate court overturned that right away. Some of the notable headlines from that Appalachian meeting were Royal Clam Bake for Underworld Cooled by Police. Police ponder New York mob meeting. All claim they are visiting a sick friend. You know, at the time, J. Edgar Hoover had maintained he knew of no national criminal organization. There was a an agent, the, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which those are the people that uh, really were documenting the mafia and the international connections of the mafia because of the international heroin trafficking all up through the 30s and 40s. We even had uh, one of our bosses, uh, Carl Savella, was caught with some heroin in the 1930s. And, and I know Bill Lousey wrote the book Open City, documents how they brought or part of this international smuggling uh, of heroin that which came to Cuba first before it went to Montreal or Canada it went to Cuba and then up through the United States and some of it came up to Kansas City and, and there was an agent that testified at these hearings over the uh, uh, Appalachian meeting and he claimed he said we believe there does exist today in the United States a society loosely organized for the specific purpose of smuggling narcotics and committing other crimes in the United States. Bobby Kennedy is the one that's questioning Agent Amato, and he said, and is that what you consider the mafia? And Amato replied, it has its core in Italy, and it is nationwide, in fact, international. So at that point in time, of course, the FBI decides there might be a mafia, and they create the top hoodlum squad, and and the rest is history. I did a, I think I did a show on the top hoodlum squad with Bill Owsley, who was one of the early agents in in Kansas City, and of course Bill Romer, the famous agent up in Chicago, was in it. And and I'm not sure who was in it in New York City. I ought to take a look at that. Kind of some other notable events about Patriarca. Here's a, a funny one that was in these uh, 
FBI documents, there was a discussion with an unnamed mobster, supposedly from New York, who was discussing with Patriarca about how he wanted to give money to the leader of the American Nazi Party, George Lincoln Rockwell. Now, this unnamed mobster claimed that Rockwell was going to start the White Church of America up in Maine because he wanted to oppose the black attorney general of Massachusetts, a man named Edward Brooke. If you're a certain age, you'll kind of remember that name. He was really a nationally known figure that ran for governor of Massachusetts and was beat. I never heard of him again, but he uh, he was like this kind of rare breed uh, successful black politician on a national basis. It had been modern times. He might have even been the first black president. But but he was going to run for governor, and uh, I think they were kind of running this by Patriarcha, thinking Patriarcha might want to get involved with this because George Lincoln Rockwell was going to really work against Brooke having any kind of political success at all. Now, one reason that they thought that Patriarca might be involved probably is because when he was the Attorney General of Massachusetts, Patriarca was trying to add some race dates in Massachusetts horse day, horse tracks and that he had an interest in, and that was kind of a big deal. And he got caught in some other bribery stuff, but he probably couldn't get Brooke bribed because he had caused him some grief in, in that situation. Uh, you know, in a sidelight, this guy talked about going down to Rockwell's headquarters and said they had a machine gun, and he described how many stormtroopers that he saw everywhere as guards. Uh, then there was no real resolving of that. They didn't come to any kind of agreement. But in a later discussion with some of his underlings, but just in general, had all these general discussions about African Americans and civil rights in the United States, which was uh, topical at the time. Patriarcha was heard to say that he thought blacks should be given the right to vote and whites should not make places like Selma, Alabama into battlegrounds against blacks. He thought that uh, African-Americans in the South should be educated. It was kind of like, you know, the education was really bad. And, uh, uh, you know, they had second-rate, blacks were given second-rate schools up north, but in the South it was really bad. And he thought that the African-Americans down South should be educated and they're really making demands just trying to help themselves. He understood that, I believe, a minority trying to help themselves. And, of course, as we all know, uh, Italians first got over here, especially southern, darker Sicilians, came to the United States. The Irish worked like heck to keep them squeezed out of any business opportunities and out of government jobs, which are kind of the early jobs that uh, – that people can get to make their leap from church sleeves to maybe some kind of the executive office eventually. You become a, a city clerk or a fireman or a policeman, and those are those are jobs that then maybe your kids come on and, and you got enough money to put them into college. And so they, Sicilians had to, like, kind of push the Irish out to start getting those jobs and create their own kind of political power base, and which has happened in every city in the United States. Patriarcha's decline came, he was he became enraged at a mob associate named Joe Barbosa, who is also known as Joe the Animal, who will become the first member of the mob to go into witness protection program. Barbosa defined the structure of the New England mob 
Barbosa's position as a contract killer required direct contact with the man said to be the boss of the New England crime syndicate, Raymond Patriarca. Now, imagine, like, Raymond sits in Rhode Island. This ashtray is Rhode Island. And this is, that's the middle of a wheel. And all these folks run out, lines of them, into, into Worcester, into Springfield, into Boston, and, and all these different uh, uh, cities and suburban towns. Now, when that, the lines go there, he has an office there, the main office in each town or city. Now, in that main office, there might be 25, uh, in a, a 25 chartered clubs or bars, more than that, in, in that city, that all turn back to that main office. Now, the main office sends somebody back towards Raymond, and at a certain point, not directly to Raymond, but to somebody Raymond Trust is just outside of Rhode Island, picks up that money and, and brings it to Raymond, and you got all these people, you know, you understand what is developing from the, this main artery that thousands and thousands of people that he controls and we have bookmakers and so forth and, and uh, the runners and so forth and pickup men. And uh, gambling is, uh, you know, re, re, you know, they're not wrong in regards to uh, the, the five cent or three cent uh, number money. You understand that, you know, when it deals in volume, brings it back millions and millions and billions of dollars a year. Seems that Barbosa had murdered another mobster without asking permission. This Barbosa, they didn't call him the animal for nothing. He he was a bad dude. They got tape of Patriarca ordering his Boston-based underboss, Jerry Angelo, to explain the rules to Barbosa. Uh, that, you know, you don't hit anybody without permission. Barbosa later came to Patriarca for permission to murder a gambler, an Irish gangster named Teddy Deegan, and he got supposedly got the okay for that one. Barbosa came to uh, uh, Patriarca to murder another guy on one example, and he was denied permission for that one. But then in 1966, Barbosa was arrested on a weapons charge, and because of his reputation as a vicious killer, the judge, there was three guys that were just carrying guns. They were down in Boston's, what they called the combat zone. They tried this out in Boston where it just opened up. There was no real vice enforcement, especially on porn, uh, prostitution in, in a particular zone in, in Boston. They even talked about that in Kansas City at one time, just to set up for the dirty bookstores and the dirty movies and and then they didn't they didn't out and out say prostitution would be legal, but it was going to be the combat zone or the red zone. Anyhow, they were carrying guns out in there, and they arrested all three of them, and two of them got out on a reasonable bond, but the judge set a $100,000 bond on Barbosa because of his reputation and his criminal history. Well, for some reason, Patriarca refused to make the bond. Then some of Barbosa's friends raised about $60,000 to go toward that bond, and some of the other Patriarca family members who were connected uh, learned about that, and they murdered them and took the money. And Barbosa, of course, you know, the underworld gossip being what it is, found out about that. Barbosa ended up getting sentenced to five years on the weapons charge. The FBI was working on him then, a, a uh, agent named uh, Paul Rico, R-I-C-O, which will... I did a show on he 
he was a Boston FBI agent who was the guy to go out and develop informants. All offices will have one or two guys that are really good at developing informants, and, and Rico was one, and he transferred out. And John Connolly, who will eventually go to the penitentiary uh, for becoming too involved with Whitey Bulger, who was his informant, will become the next one. And Rico, by the end of his life, he'll retire, go to... Um, Florida working high lie uh, security, and he'll end up being arrested for supposedly providing an address for a man involved in high lie that some Boston mobsters wanted to kill, and they killed him in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, Rico is is arrested on a indictment out of the Tulsa area for that murder, for being part of that murder conspiracy, and basically for they had an informant that had turned on the other murders. I can't remember their names now. They were Boston mobsters, and, and they said Rico furnished this name and furnished this guy's address. Uh, they brought Rico back to Tulsa, and, and he died in the hospital. He had some kind of health problems about the, and by the time he got back there, and he died in the hospital. So we'll never know for sure. There's a couple of FBI agents that I interviewed in an old. Uh, I'm sure it's still back there in the in the catalog. You can you can listen to if you haven't listened to it. That believe that he was set up and and he didn't really wasn't really involved with that murder he didn't provide that but these i don't know what what the deal was these boston fbi agents getting too close to these informants and then it's a tough one i've talked about that before it's those informants are constantly trying to compromise you when you're working closely with them on an ongoing basis you don't just have a a one-shot case they're just like providing you intelligence so you're meeting with them all the time you always meet usually meeting bars and kind of get close to them you start liking them and and they're pretty charming many times and and they're constantly trying to uh to compromise whoever it is they're working with so they can get themselves back in control 1969 barbosa will testify against patriarcha and, and many others uh, he will patriarcha was sentenced on a murder in 1969 He's released in 1974, and he'll return and run his family till his death in 1984. So that uh, that kind of uh, that's not all of of Raymond Patriarca, but that's that's really the story of what they learned in those uh, illegal, shall we say, they weren't really illegal microphones. They were uh, uh, not legal, but not illegal at the time. They did not use the take, what we call the take from those microphones, directly in court. They would then take that information, and if they could figure out who they were talking about and what they were talking about, maybe go run a surveillance on somebody else and say, you know, I had, you know, an informant told me that this was happening and that was happening, uh, and then hopefully build a case not directly laid to the microphones, but only indirectly. Now, uh, after, was it, I think it was 1968, they passed the Omnibus Crime Control Act and, and created what they call Title III and a, a path to get a, a warrant to do legitimate wiretaps and legitimate microphones you have to commit a trespass like to put in a hidden microphone you got to commit a trespass so you back then it was just a trespass yeah. uh, today it's a legal trespass but you at least have a court that deems it's okay that you go into this place and and uh, install this microphone there was a really uh, a fantastic bunch of information that came out of that hidden microphone that you know we'll never know exactly 
how much they acted on or what because i tell you it's tough they talk in innuendo they talk without giving names they talk without giving places they may mention things like a large load of razor blades but nobody ever sees them because then somebody else goes out and calls somebody else and says okay take them over here and then that guy will then send the money through somebody else and back to the guy and or back to Patriarca and Patriarca's henchman will then pay the guy that actually stole it off. It's uh, uh, it's difficult when when you try to live your whole life trying to hide things. It's it's difficult. You know, one last thing I want to say here, and, and then I'm going to let you all go, as we say, back home. Uh when uh, Patriarcha died, started trying to get a new boss, and and the National Commission is consulted, and they ended up choosing Raymond Patriarcha Jr. and they uh, appoint his rival, a guy named Larry Zanino, as a consigliere. And then shortly after that, Zanino and Jerry Angelo down in Boston are sentenced to very long prison sentences. They never wanted to make Angelo as a as the boss. I'm not sure why. Uh, and the old consigliere, Henry Tamaleo, and a couple other senior members are also in prison for a long time. By 1990, the FBI has put together a large RICO case, and they indict Raymond Patriarca Jr. and 20 other high-ranking members of the New England crime family. Now, during that investigation, this is what I want to tell you about, the FBI was even able to record the mafia induction ceremony and the discussion of the rules afterwards. And there's a website out there. It's on, uh, I don't know, I start Googling around Raymond Patriarca Jr. and mafia induction ceremony, and you can hear some of that audio, and you can see the transcripts of um, the discussing the rules afterwards. Uh, uh, this really embarrassed and harmed the standing of Patriarcha Jr. Uh, after he, fi- he finished his prison sentence out of that RICO, it was only eight years, so he, I don't know exactly uh, what they convicted him of, but he just left the life. And after that, a guy named Cadillac Frank Salome uh, took over. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. And uh, he'd been working closely with Whitey Bulger and Steve Fleming and the Whittle- Winter Hill Gang. We all know that... <laughs> Those guys were, Bulger and Fleming were ratting out to the FBI all along. Uh, uh, it was a crazy, crazy world up there in Boston. So don't forget, if you want to be an executive producer or a producer, an associate producer on my latest movie, Voter Fraud Again, why, uh, check out these show notes or I'll put some, I'll, I'll explain it all out on my donate page on my website. Thanks, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey. <laughs>